Well, every Sunday we get closer and closer to John 20, verse 31. I'm going to read verses 30 and 31 just to kind of force us back into the context, really the theme of the book of John. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so this is where John's headed. This is the apex of the book, the apex of the record. John's hope is that by recording, in a human sense, what God has given to him would result in the salvation of those who would believe in him. John uh, was considered the evangelist. It was his desire to share truth with people that they would be spared the wrath of God, which all men deserve, and that they might experience eternal life by believing in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's not uncommon for folks in a church setting, in an ecclesiological setting, to grow glassy-eyed over this intrinsically fundamental Christian reality. Maybe to have heard it enough times that it has become something of a desensitization. Maybe it seemed important at one time, or maybe it never really did. Maybe it was just simply something that seemed okay enough uh, that a person could kind of suffer through it while maintaining peace with his or her parents, or maybe a spouse so long as there's some sort of favor gained, so long as there's some sort of increasing development of one's reputation, then it's worth it to sit through these difficult truths. What we'll see this morning is that the truth gets harder and harder. And what I don't mean by that in our text this morning is that it gets more difficult to understand because it doesn't. Last week took some effort. And if you hadn't been poring over that passage, you probably were alarmed with the conclusions to which we arrived. We'll do a little bit of a review this morning before we get into this morning's text. This morning will be quite different, though. As hard as this is, as hard as the truth is, it's simple to see it for what it is. And so it's one of those amazing moments in the life of the world exposed to Jesus Christ where there is a very, very clear but truly humanly unbelievable truth such that it provides the clearest gap between the believer and the unbeliever. The unbeliever, in many cases, will smile through it all, act like, sure, that's fine, I have no problem with that. And at the point where he becomes honest and weary of hearing truth, he says, this is not for me any longer. And he jumps ship. For many folks, that starts the first day they hear truth. They don't want to hear it anymore, and maybe they're a little more honest in their depravity. But there are those who will live a life of hypocrisy, and that really is summed up in the life of the Jews. And you see the term Jews throughout the book of John. Primarily, John is referring to the leadership of the Jews, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, the scribes, the Sadducees, and they did a wonderful job of convincing others that they were fulfilling the law, that they were living a lifestyle that was honoring to the Lord, and so they persuaded their followers to attempt to do the same thing. 
while they themselves were utter and complete failures, they tied up burdens unbearable for people to bear, but pretended that they themselves were able to bear it. This is very common in our day as well. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, is just Judaism rebaked. It's the same exact false doctrine. It's all about performance. It's all about mixing Jesus with some sort of works. Uh, For the Jews, it was mixing God with some sort of works. Of course, they rejected the Messiah, but they claimed not to reject the Messiah. They claimed they were waiting for the Messiah. So in many, many ways, nearly every way, unorthodox, really unbelieving Judaism is precisely the same as modern-day Roman Catholicism. Last week, in verses 35 through 40, we saw that Jesus revealed that knowing about him was not enough. You must believe in him, persevering in trusting him with your soul so that he will raise you up on the day of judgment for eternal life. Now, we clarified this by saying we are not saying that a person who perseveres is earning eternal life in his perseverance. We're simply saying that the person who does persevere, the person who genuinely has faith in the Lord, does persevere, and that perseverance is evidence of saving faith. It's not just about obeying in some sort of obligatory fashion. It is truly about trusting in the person of Christ and growing in your humility as you become increasingly aware of the hard truths about his character. You are increasingly able and willing to embrace them for what they are. And in this text, throughout, especially today, we're going to see that those who refuse to believe the hard truths that are simply stated and simply illustrated in in very clear metaphors are simply not believers. They've pretended. And so what you have is a spiritual ocean that separates the believer from the unbeliever. You're going to see this in massive form this morning. I hope you're encouraged by what we look at together, that you would have that much clearer a picture of who needs your sacrificial, faithful, evangelistic love. It's so important that you think rightly about that. We said last week that while Jesus provides eternal satisfaction, some will simply not believe. They simply won't believe. And there are plenty of people, many people, who say they do believe. But again, when it gets to the hard truths, they don't. And that's what Jesus is dealing with here. He's dealing with the hard truth of consuming Jesus as illustrated in the idea of eating his flesh. We won't get into that today. We'll get into that next time. But this is what this illustration is intended to point to. Now, the Roman Catholic Church gets super mystical about this and says, well, it really is the physical body of Jesus. The bread literally turns into the physical body of Jesus, and anybody with any cognizance at all would say, yeah, I don't think so, because that's bread. That's not flesh. Well, no, it is flesh, and that's how the whole thing goes. It's nonsense. It's mysticism. And it's uh, really one among many doctrinal commitments in the Roman Catholic Church that are just rooted in silliness and utter manipulation intended to persuade people to think that they're not spiritual enough if they won't believe in these mystical uh, 
uh, nonsense statements, these, these doctrines that make no sense at all. They're completely impossible. No miracle of God has ever displayed anything like the literal eating of flesh for the sake of being more spiritual. And there are a number of offshoots of wrong thinking about the Lord's table. We went through those last week generically. We'll go through them more specifically next time. But we said again that Jesus provides eternal satisfaction while some simply will not believe. And as we mentioned last time, the parables are intended to display this reality. That's what a parable does. It's a, typically a fictional story in living color intended to separate the believer from the unbeliever. The unbeliever says, yeah, I don't get it. Even though the parable for the believer helps. You read the parable, you say, hey, I think I kind of understand this better. In some cases, you say, I need to understand the parable better. And you keep reading, and Jesus explains the parable. And so you say, man, this is making more and more sense. I love Christ. I love his word. I'm understanding it. The unbeliever says, oh, that's all nonsense. The guy teaching that has no idea what he's talking about. He doesn't make any sense. And so he turns on somebody like Andy Stanley. Uh, at one point, he made the statement that if you're in a small church, you're abusing your children meaning that you need to go to a big church where there's more for your children. He cut a lot of flack for that and uh, sort of pseudo-rejected it and tried to polish it and move on. He said a number of, of, of bizarre things. Most recently, what he's saying is that if the church is going to survive, it's got to unhitch itself from the Old Testament. And Andy Stanley's synchronon of foolish, false doctrine this day is the idea that the Word of God is not fundamental to the Christian faith. Now you think, well, that's, that's awful. But when he says the next part, you might think, well, maybe that makes a little bit of sense. He says the resurrection is fundamental to the Christian faith. You say, well, wait a minute. Where do we get our information about the resurrection? We get our information about the resurrection from Scripture. Now, history provides ample evidence and proof, really, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that's not why we believe it. We believe it because Scripture says it because of the testimony of the Spirit of God who indwells us and enables us to understand and believe His Word. That's why we believe what we believe about the resurrection. That's why we believe there were 500 witnesses. Andy Stanley says, you don't need the Bible to believe in the resurrection. There's a sense in which what he's saying is true. You don't need to believe in the Bible to know that the resurrection happened, but you do need to believe in the Bible to understand why the resurrection matters. Well, the result of that kind of ministry is a lot of false belief. A lot of glassy-eyed people who sit through the nonsense year after year after year and never really question whether or not what they're hearing is actually helpful. The parables separate those folks from the real believers. In one sect of churches, uh, one large organization of churches, they don't call themselves a denomination, but they're certainly connected and typically surrounding the theology of one man, a lot of people have said the biggest problem with that organization is that they encourage people in their churches to read the Bible. You say, why is that a problem? Because pretty soon they're rejecting what they're hearing from the pulpit. Because so much of what they see in their Bible is completely opposite. It's polar opposite of what they're hearing from the pulpit. Well, if you're going to read your Bible, if you're going to be faithful to the Scripture, you're going to want to be taught well. The person who doesn't want to be taught well is probably not really in his Bible. 
he probably does a good job of pretending he's in his Bible so that he might have some influence on others to reject sound teaching. But these people, the masses, this mob, rejected Jesus because they did not believe in who he professed to be and what he required of them. He says in verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. The point is, you've had everything necessary to see me. They were asking for signs. He had already done signs. We don't know how many miracles he did, but we know that it was more than enough and they just wanted more. Ultimately, at this point, as you know, they wanted to be fed. They wanted their bellies filled. Second point we looked at last week was that all who believe will be known by the satisfaction he provides. So he not only provides satisfaction while there are those who will reject that satisfaction, that eternal satisfaction for earthly sustenance, we also see that those who actually come to him, those who legitimately trust in him, are known by contentment. They are not complainers. They rest in Him. And when they see and acknowledge and become aware, increasingly aware of their grumbling, they confess it. They repent of it. They reject it. They are satisfied. They're satisfied in Him. The satisfaction that He provides is what their lives become marked by. People who know them would say, there there is a person who knows how to suffer well. There's a person who knows joy in the midst of affliction. There's a person who doesn't need new stuff all the time because he's satisfied in Christ. He doesn't need greater and increasing and more expensive possessions because his treasure is in heaven. We said last week that there were four categories of people that become, uh, these. I should say these categories as we go through them, are clearly increasingly unwilling to believe the difficult truth about the Father's sovereignty and salvation. Verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. A clear explanation of the sovereignty of God in salvation So we gave you these four categories. The first was the mature believer to whom this truth is new. He's truly faithful. He's truly humble. He's truly grown and grown to love the Word and to trust the Lord. But for whatever reason, his pastor, those who have taught him the Scripture, have dodged this issue because it is difficult. I love the difficult issues because I know that Spirit-filled study gets you to the right conclusion. It takes a lot of hard work. But there are those who simply avoid them. And the result is that people might grow and grow well, but when it comes to, you know, Acts 9, they just skip over it. When it comes to Romans 9, they bypass it. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, skip over it. So years and years and years later, while they have in fact matured, they wonder how in the world they missed this. They're offended. They're hogtied. They don't know what to do. They don't want to believe it, but they will eventually come around. The second category for whom this is even more difficult is the young, immature, but humble and growing believer. He's growing, but he's immature. 
And so the harder truths are even harder for him because he's a Christian baby. Uh, Let me just encourage you that if you are uh, influential in a Christian baby's life, you don't want to be guilty of that which would result in it being said about you, that it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck. Should I divert people away from the truth of the character of Christ then you are defrauding a little one. And you certainly don't want to be guilty of that. But there are plenty of people who do that. They hate truth, they pretend to love truth, and therefore they persuade the younger crowd to hate truth. The young, immature, but humble and growing believer would be shaken by the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation, but he's eventually going to come around because he's humble and he's growing. And he's pursuing good, solid leadership in his life. The third category for whom this is even more difficult is the poorly taught believer who for years has nurtured his own practice of self-Bible study with no real help. He really doesn't know what he's doing. He just believes that he's capable. And so he says, I just trust the Holy Spirit for interpretation. And so it's uh, like uh, in the book of Kings. There is no king. So everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So he believes whatever he wants to believe. He develops his own theology, if you can even call it that. But eventually, if he's faithful, God will bring a faithful teacher into his life and help him understand the harder truths. And he will come around. The fourth category is the false convert. And as I said last time, this is the hardest of the hard clay. It is truly impenetrable. And so the more he hears hard truth, even when it is so clearly stated and so well illustrated, he not only rejects it, his heart gets harder. And he establishes further defense against that truth that would, in fact, humble him. Jesus says he's come down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. He says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It takes a lot of lingual gymnastics to get out of the fact that God grants to the Son, the Father God grants to God the Son, those who will believe. That's what the whoever refers back to. The antecedent of whoever is those who believe. So all who believe are representative of those that God has given to his son. And what will he do? He will note their belief and he will grant them eternal life and he will raise them up on the day of judgment. Well, that's our review. This morning, we'll see that Jesus exposes the false conversion of those who grumble against him so that all who will actually believe in him will have eternal life. This is, uh, should be really as frightening as that section in Exodus where the Israelites in their grumbling were put to death. Can you imagine in our society today if grumbling against your parents, grumbling against the government, grumbling against the Lord brought about a legal execution? Well, in, in the case of the Israelites, God just took them. He just wiped them out. But don't lose sight of the fact that God is no less serious today about grumbling than he was in the Old Testament 
era. It's a different economy. You say it's an era of grace. That was an era of grace too. It's just expressed differently. God has always been an amazing God of grace. The grace that he showed the Israelites in their complaining after complaining after complaining and eventually took them. The truth of the matter is the timing is different, but it's the same today. The person who just grumbles, who just complains, who is always looking at the negative, always looking for some way, somehow, to cause other people to look bad, especially spiritual leaders. That person is showing self to have gone out from us because he was not of us. You can take that to the spiritual bank. That's what was the problem with the Israelites. In our text this morning, in verse 41, it says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And you've got to wonder, with these folks who claim to be Messianic Christians, they claim to await the Messiah, they put a lot of stock in 1 John 5, verse 1. You might want to turn there briefly with me. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's their passage. Well, it's our passage too. And what do I mean by they? Who am I talking about? I'm talking about those who say that Jesus is not God. My question for them is, why do you care? What does it matter? If you're wrong and we're right, does it really matter that he, in fact, is God? Why would you make such a big deal out of that? And like I told you last time, it is because Satan is behind it. Satan wants as many people as possible to believe in a false deity. In fact, to believe in a false messiah. So to say, as John says here in 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, you have to ask the question, which Jesus? This book comes after the Gospel of John. John has already made it clear that Jesus is God. He is God in eternity past. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus claimed to be the eternal one, the existing one, John 8, 58. Who are you? Well, before Abraham was, I am, Yahweh. It's the exact same terminology used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew in Exodus 3, where when Moses said, Lord, who shall I tell the Egyptians? Who shall I tell Pharaoh is sending me? He said, Yahweh. The term simply means the existing one. And that was God's response to Moses. Jesus' response was the exact same thing. The Septuagint, again, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, translates it as ego eimi, I am. That's exactly what Jesus says. And then he says it another six times. In fact, there are seven times where he says this, and there's something along with it. I am the bread of life. I am the light. I am the door. I am the vine. All of those stem in the reality that he is Yahweh. He is the eternal one. Yes, Jesus is Jehovah. You can tell your neighbors that when they stop in to blaspheme him with a different Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible. See, whoever grumbles against this Jesus, the character of the true God, doesn't know him. These Jews have the spirit of their ancestors when the Lord himself led them out of captivity from Egypt in Exodus 16.2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, 
Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out here into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They were carrying on the tradition of grumbling and complaining that their fathers had well established. You know, sometimes I want to bring this reality to the, t- the attention of those who seem to just be what a friend of mine used to call a complaint factory. But unfortunately, that's poisonous. And especially in the body of Christ, especially in the assembly of God, this is why God is so serious about it. Numbers 11.4, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Hear that? That's a contagious infection. It had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. How ungrateful. How unbelievable. Here the Lord is providing exactly what they need. And they're complaining about it. Now the mander was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of delium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. You say, who was Moses displeased with? Well, Moses was double-minded. He spent time being upset with the Lord and upset with the people. He was stuck in the middle. But he was God's man, and ultimately Moses would humbly come around and rightly represent God and tell the people what they needed to hear. And they went through cycles where they rejected him as the mouthpiece of God. And as you know, that became disastrous a few times. Verse 42 in our text says, They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come from heaven? Well, this would make sense that this wouldn't make sense to those who simply knew him as the Galilean. The Jews in Jerusalem were vexed over his claims of equality with God the Father, claiming to be God himself. In John 5.18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. But these Jews here in Galilee, in our text this morning, were angry over the unbelievable idea that the carpenter's son, who had come from Nazareth, could in fact be from heaven. How could he make such a claim? While he called himself the bread of heaven, they knew him from when he arrived in Capernaum in chapter 2, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Mark 6, 2 tells us, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
despite the, the fact that he displayed amazing wisdom, they wanted to hold to the principle that a prophet has no honor in his own town. How could the carpenter be of any value? How could he whose brothers and sisters are running around causing trouble, how could he be of any greater value than they? Luke 4.16 says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and it was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see what he's claiming in their presence? He's claiming to be the Messiah that they had waited for. He goes on, it goes on to say, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So again, smatterings of disbelief. While they make much of their knowledge of his earthly father here in Galilee, these Jews are in for it because Jesus makes much more over their lack of knowledge of his heavenly father. They want to highlight who his earthly father is while he wants them to understand who his heavenly father is. Back in John 4, verse 20, the sinful woman says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. You see, the problem is that they don't know God. Doubling that problem, compounding that problem, is not only their statement, but their desire to believe that they actually do know God. This is true Today, plenty of people, many people think they know God for a number of different reasons. And the more you look at the Scripture and what the Scripture displays about the character of God, about the character of Christ, the easier it gets for them to get to the place where they are willing to say, you know what, I guess I don't really believe in that. The trouble is there are those who want to reject what Scripture clearly says while embracing other parts of it. This is disastrous, not only for the soul who wants to do that, but sadly for those upon whom they have influence. John 8, 18 says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. They probably weren't aware of just how insulting this was. They probably at this point were not completely aware and to some degree had probably forgotten some of the things he had said with regard to the fact that he is claiming equality with God. John eight fifty three, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? 
Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. They're grumbling over these realities that he's declaring about himself. And yeah, in many cases today, it's flavored differently. It looks different. But the core issue in this passage is verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That is the hard truth. And I'm not saying this, and I want to be very careful about this, and I hope you are as well. Somebody asked me a week or two ago, would we say that a person is not a Christian if he doesn't believe in election? Absolutely not. It is not fundamental to the Christian faith to believe in election. It is fundamental in disbelief in the Christian faith to continue to reject the doctrine of election once you've seen it over and over and over and over. So there's a significant difference. And so we would warmly welcome anyone who says, you know, I'm sorry, I just don't believe in the doctrine of election. If, in fact, they are resting in the cross and in the resurrection, if they are resting entirely and completely in the atonement, the forgiveness of sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, and the ability and the power to walk in obedience and faithfulness and increasing maturity because of the power of the resurrection, which displays God's power over sin and over death. The person who says that, he's a Christian. But in time, he's going to see that the harder truths are that which reveal whether or not he really is a Christian. How, how, how is it I can say it that way? How is it that we can so warmly welcome someone who barely by a thread shows himself to be a believer because the apostles did with Simon? And it was the right thing to do. The apostles didn't look back on that and say, man, we really goofed there. This is how it works. When someone gives a clear expression of the power of the gospel and their life seems to display that, you affirm that person. It's not incumbent upon us to, you know, to search far and wide and look at every nook and cranny and find little details in someone's life that might show some sort of pattern that might indicate that maybe they're not a believer. If they show faith in the gospel, we would say, just like the apostles said about Simon, this is a believer. And if that person turns around a day or two or six years later and says, you know what, I'm just in it for the money. Oh. We probably wouldn't say what Peter said to Simon. May your silver burn with you. But we would probably say something equally difficult. You know, you're showing yourself not to be a believer. What is one of the telltale signs of the false convert? It's grumbling. It's the person who can't seem to control himself but simply just wants to bag on anybody and everybody. And the more they get removed from the true body of Christ, the easier it gets. Whoever grumbles against the character of God doesn't know him. He doesn't know him. He might like some of the things about God. He certainly likes this idea that God is love. 
He certainly likes the idea that God is forgiving. But when he starts to see that God actually holds somebody accountable to not only live in a way that displays obedience, but to actually believe truth about the character of God, he gets very, very uncomfortable. And sometimes, as we've said, it it literally takes years for that person to be driven away by the truth. And we would never intend to drive someone away, but that's what truth does to the hard heart. Sometimes it's a chip at a time. Sometimes it's a week at a time. And sometimes it's a year at a time. And you've seen it happen for sure. John 16, verse 1. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. How about that? I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. How about that? The person who is faithful in Christ, the person who is trusting Christ. And then there are those who come along in a religious spirit in the name of God and they actually execute legitimate believers. Yeah, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. Verse 3 in John 16 says, And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus does that a number of times where he explains some significant truth. And he says, now remember this. You're going to need to remember this. Specifically the death and the resurrection that he would undergo. He wanted them to remember that. They didn't want to remember it. So while Jesus draws attention to their grumbling over their misconceptions about him, he emphasizes the reason for their ignorance and bewilderment. They do not have eternal life because they are resting in their own deeds rather than acknowledging that eternal life comes as a gift from God the Father of God the Son. It is the gift of the Son from the Father to the children of God that results in eternal life. He is the gift of salvation. He is the gift of eternal life. He is the bread of life, the bread from heaven, the bread of eternal life. It's him. It's about him. And I said to you a few weeks ago, we want to be very careful that we don't just make it somehow a educational issue with regard to the gospel. Praise God, we have eternal life. We have forgiveness. We, we have the beauty and the joy of fellowship. But we can get to the place where we focus on those things and we bypass him. Is that the saddest thing you've ever heard? that we somehow would have such a great appreciation for all that he does because we're so focused on the gospel, but we forget that the root and the foundation and the power and the joy and the beauty of the gospel is him? Have you been guilty? I have. You know, that you grow desensitized to this amazing, joyous reality that our Savior loves us so deeply, so perfectly, so eternally, that his life in a completely uninterrupted fashion displays that amazing uninterrupted love. What joy, what beauty. And so when we sing, we worship him. This is why we save our singing for the last. It's not wrong to sing three or four songs before you hear the preaching. It's not wrong. But we strategically said, let's really get ourselves deeply entrenched in the truth of God's word and sing it back to him. And we found that to be helpful. Uh, again, it's not a mandate in Scripture, but I think it's good that you would hear truth in a way that's hopefully powerfully used by the Spirit of God to penetrate your soul, to bring you to repentance, to bring you to obedience, 
to bring you to acknowledgement of your sin, for you to undergo the pastoral care necessary for a biblical church. I have the privilege in uh, October to preach in the uh, preaching conference in Madagascar. And one of the things they've asked me to preach on is the relationship between the sermon and the people. The pastor's thoughts, the biblical pastoral thinking about what goes on in the heart and life and ministries of people as they hear the word of God and then relationships are developed pastorally. (laughs) I said, have you been reading my mind? I drink and breathe that every single day. That's who we are as leadership in your church. You have a shepherd. If you have subjected yourself to what we believe to be the biblical blueprint in the New Testament for the local church, you have a shepherd and you trust that man and you are involved in his life in some ways. He's certainly involved in your life. He helps you memorize scripture. He teaches you. He helps you understand how to study the word of God. He might buy you a book or two every now and then, uh, but he's there for you and he prays for you and He's there to hear you. He's there to counsel you. And you have other shepherds. Every shepherd in our church is of that same mindset. But we've kind of divided ourselves up into smaller flocks within the flock, uh, not for the sake of division, but for the sake of unity. That every person would have specific pastoral care. Why? That you would love Jesus. That you would grow in your love for him. Are you distracted today? Is there something weighing on your heart so heavily that you've hardly heard anything I've said? And most of what I've said has been an annoyance. Because I know that happens. And it could well be that you've been grumbling, and maybe not so specifically or so obviously as the Jews who grumbled against the deity of Jesus Christ, who grew in their grumbling by choosing to grumble with regard to his illustration of bread. But maybe your grumbling is that he hasn't done enough for you. Maybe you wonder why he hasn't produced better friends for you, a better job for you, a better car Uh, better support in whatever endeavor you've taken on. Maybe you're uh, not saying it out loud that way. Maybe you would never verbalize it that way, but maybe you found yourself to be in a rhythm or a pattern of grumbling. Well, there's hope. There's hope. Point two from our text this morning is that whoever trusts in the character of God has eternal life in him. See, this is the reality of the person whose life is patternistically changing. While there has been a pattern of grumbling, while there has been a pattern of distrust, there's been a pattern of rejecting truth. The one who is willing to say, you know, this is a hard truth, but I see it. I see it. You know, some might be critical and say, oh, here we go again on the doctrine of election. You know, you're going to have to get used to that because it's really, truly everywhere in the Bible. And the person who doesn't see it everywhere is working hard to deny that it's there. And often what he does, and you've heard me use this phrase before, often what he does is he'll pit the Bible against the Bible. And they'll say things like, well, you know, they have their verses and we have our verses. They're all ours. 
We believe in all of it. We believe in man's responsibility as much as we believe in God's sovereignty. And the person who thinks we overemphasize election is denying the fact that we give equal, if not more, emphasis on obedience. There's never been a time where we've emphasized the sovereignty of God without at least equally emphasizing the responsibility of man because that's how it goes throughout the text of Scripture. The person who trusts in the character of God as he grows in his understanding of the character of God is the one who displays the reality that he has eternal life. You've got to ask the question for the person who continues year after year, decade after decade, to reject the plain truth of the Scripture. Why is it that he's so passionate about rejecting what you and I see and yet, in our honesty, in our, hopefully in our humility, we would say, it's hard, but I see it, and so I believe it, and I'm going to do my best to understand it in a way that I can articulate it clearly and lovingly and patiently with others, but I'm certainly not going to deny that it's there. See, that's the pride of the person who says he knows better than anybody else. And if he were really honest, he would come out and say he knows better than God. There's no way that God could possibly have predetermined whom he's going to save and decide who he's going to give to the Son. That's not my God. Well, see, that's a redefinition of God. But the person who humbly sits back and says, it's here. That's the person who's going to humbly grow And think of it, those that you know who continue to reject the sovereignty of God are not displaying any measure of spiritual growth, much less ministerial effectiveness. Who's following them, right? Who's being changed? Who's growing spiritually? Whose lives is that person having influence on for greater godliness, greater humility? Whoever trusts in the character of God has eternal life in him. Verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He gives eternal life and raises up on the day of judgment all that the Father gives him. Elkuo, which is translated as draw here, means to haul. That's what it means. It means to lead by force. It means to drag. It's not some idea that, you know, the Holy Spirit kind of whispers in your ear, Come to Jesus, please. That's not what this is. It's the Spirit of God taking the reins and, as Peter says, causing a person to be born again. Think of it. In a man-centered theology that doesn't believe in the total depravity that you see all throughout the Scripture, there is no need for regeneration. Why would a person need to be made alive if he were already alive enough to choose Jesus? Make sense? He doesn't need regeneration. He doesn't really believe that he's dead in his trespasses and sins. He only believes that he's ailing and he needs some assistance. The same term, Elkuo, is used in John 12, 32, which says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Who does he mean by all people? Does he mean every single person in the world? Well, no. If you believe that, you're a universalist. You believe everybody's going to heaven with 
Jesus. Let me read the passage again, and then I'll explain it. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's talking about every tongue, tribe, and nation. There will be some from all people. You could say it this way. It means that all people will be represented in those who come to him and are given him by the Father. By then, he will have by his blood ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and will have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5, 9 to 10. And John 5, 39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, he takes it back. This is back in John 5. He goes back to the basic reality that people who do not believe in him, people who do not come to him, do not believe in who he is. That's the problem. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of choosing falsehood about him, choosing to believe something about him that's not true and or choosing to reject something about him that, in fact, is true. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Uh, we have been through this already, but the idea here is that they are looking for glory from each other. The Pharisees were really good at flattering each other, uh, exalting one another, being dishonest about each other so as to continue to persuade the more lowly people that they were, in fact, righteous. And you know that Jesus said that unless your righteousness outdoes that of the Pharisees, you will go to hell. The Pharisees had a display of righteousness, but they did not have the righteousness of Christ. Verse 45 says, It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Again, it's, it's hard to imagine that he could have been more clear. Everyone who learns from the Father comes to him. Everyone. He will not lose one. All that the Father gives to him will come unto him. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus references the prophet Isaiah here in Isaiah 54, 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. This speaks of the lineage in the Christian faith, that there are those who have been granted the promise. All who have been granted the promise will come unto him. And so what do they need? Some of the Jews who would have been of the elect, certainly there were Jews who were eventually saved. They were of the elect. What do they need? They need illumination. They need the light to come on. They're dead. They need to be made alive. They need the work of God the Spirit, and without it, they are dead of heart, spiritually blind, and spiritually deaf. 
This will be familiar to you from the Old Testament. This was really the apex of the, the heart issue in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This speaks of the coming salvation of the nation of Israel. So God promises that one day for all the Jews on the earth, he will restore them unto himself, his people. And what will cause that? It'll be the granting of forgiveness. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Similar in Ezekiel 36, 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You say that? That sounds a little bit like a robotic control. No, no, no. There's still latitude for disobedience. But the point is, the person who has that new heart loves to obey the Savior. The person who loves to pretend does not love the Savior. He's not in the Lord. That's the distinction. The masses didn't want to obey him. The masses wanted to be fed. They wanted some sort of ecstasy early on, and then they just wanted their stomachs to be satiated. They wanted their hunger to be satisfied. You see, in 1 Corinthians 2, and you probably know that passage well. We've talked about it so many, many times. You see the contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. Paul tells us there that the wisdom of man is foolishness to God, and the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot discern them. That's the problem with the unbelieving Jews in Galilee. That was the problem with the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. That's the problem with the unbelieving churchgoer today who just goes through the motions, who can't seem to lock on to an uninterrupted passion for the glory of Christ and the better good of the body of Christ. It's an intermittent entanglement and annoyance at best. But he hangs in there because he gets something out of it, but he certainly doesn't get real joy out of it. And what does he need? He needs to be regenerated. What should you tell him? Tell him to repent of his sins, to come to Christ. Tell him to believe in the Christ of the Bible, to stop rejecting whatever non-truths you are hanging on to. 
John 8, 43, Jesus says, why do you not understand what I say? You see, it was the Jews who were at fault for disbelieving him. Not the word, not God, not God's faithlessness. He says, why do you not understand what I say? You remember the point of the parables? was to illustrate or display the confusion of those who did not believe. Jesus said, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Friends, listen to me. You know somebody who continues to reject the plain truth of Scripture and complain and grumble and whine and cry time and time and time again. Mark it down. That's not a believer. Nothing about that person's life displays anything that overcomes the reality that incessant complaining about truth, particularly the character of God, reveals that he does not trust God in his Bible-revealed character. Jesus says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Verse 47 in our text says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. You say, we're back to that? It's that simple? Well, yeah, it's that simple, but you've got to believe in the right Jesus. <laughs> you can't recreate Jesus. You can't take nine-tenths of who he is. You can't take some large percentage of who God displays himself to be and reject a significant truth related to his character. You can't do that. It's heresy. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. But you and I have known plenty of people throughout the years who have an appearance of belief. They wear relatively nice clothes on Sunday mornings, and they show up and they say nice things. They might even, you know, help serve food or especially donuts. Donuts are great. You know, I like people who bring me donuts. You know, all these things we could go on and on and on and on and on and say, look at the stuff. They do. How could you say that person's not a believer? How could you be so unkind? And I would say, how could you be so unkind? It's not to really dig down deep and know people well enough to know whether or not they actually love the Savior. And they love repentance. And they love nurturing repentance in others. And they love those who do the same. I want to finish with a text that we'll look at in the coming days. In John 6, beginning with verse 64, and we'll conclude with this. John 6, 64, as this scenario further unfolds and Jesus begins to display this same truth in a harder and harder and yet clearer and clearer way, he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Why? How did he know? Because he was paying attention. It's not because he's God. It's not because he's omniscient. It's because he was watching Judas's life. In the incarnation, Jesus had to get to know people the same way you and I have to get to know people. He loved Judas enough to eventually expose the truth about him, but he was gracious enough to wait for the right timing. And he said, verse 65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by 
the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Peter denied him. I mean, it's just unbelievable, isn't it? That Peter would make this statement, this bold, amazingly faithful statement, Lord, we could never leave you. Where are we, we going to go? You've got the words of life, and people do it today. The harder the truth gets, the more clearly it's displayed, the more quickly they're willing to leave. And they go out from us because they were not of us. The disciples said, this is a hard thing. <laughs> Who can listen to it? What does that mean? It means they think it's nonsense. Some of you don't believe. So what do you tell people who don't believe? Well, you got to be believable yourself. You know? you got to display repentance. you got to display faithfulness. You know, one of the best things you can do for your unbelieving family members is show your devotion to the body of Christ. Show your devotion to Christ and his body. The moment you start abandoning the body of Christ so that you can have more time with your unbelieving family members, the more they're going to say, yeah, I knew you weren't so really thrilled about that. And God grants eternal life to the believer. He wants to be out around believers who are the real thing, who truly show what it means to be faithful to him and don't walk away. See, whoever trusts in the character of God has eternal life in him. And that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To truly consistently, regularly keep on placing your faith in the hard truths that you know about Jesus because people will ridicule you. They will ridicule you. The more you believe what you increasingly come to understand about him, the more they will hate you because they hate him. And so there will be this growing divide between those who are in Christ and those who are not. And what is your role? Your role is to let that divide grow by growing yourself in likeness to him. Father, we rejoice in the clarity of your word and we pray for ourselves that we would be faithful to, in fact, stop grumbling uh, where we have patterns of complaining and whining. Lord, help us to know them to be true. But I pray that you would give us the strength to lovingly and gently address these things in each other's lives where we hamstring our ministry, where we cut ourselves short, where we destroy platforms with believers and unbelievers because our mouths run faster than our hearts. And sometimes our hearts are on display because of where our hearts, our mouths go when we complain. But Lord, help us in fact rather to grow in our understanding of the person of Christ by singing sound theology, by reading the word, by reading good books that take us back to the person of Christ, that display his sovereign grace. Lord, that we would trust you knowing that not one whom you've given to your son will turn away from him, and no one who comes to him will he cast out. We pray in his name. Amen.